All right. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Tasha Gank Morton. I am a pastor at Holy Trinity Lutheran Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And my presentation, as you heard, is Could I Be Any More Asian? Um, said Joey Tribbiani style. Uh, and my thoughts on the importance of representation and its limits. So first things first, a little bit about me. Um, I am a Korean American adoptee and I grew up in Minnesota. Um, I start with that because, you know, there's always the awkward question, you know, uh, where are you from? Well, I'm from Minnesota, but where are you from? I'm from Minnesota. There's, you know, I know what they're getting at. There's really, I, I haven't figured out a good way to tell people how to ask it. I mean, you could just ask me what kind of Asian I am and I'd probably be so impressed by your boldness. I would just answer you. Um, and I grew up with uh, white parents and a Korean adoptee sister who was four years younger than me. Um, so that's a little bit about us. And my parents were kind of a mix of everything, mainly Scandinavian and German, but also some English and Irish and a few others. Um, so I think there were like 11, I had to in high school ask my parents, um, you know, all the different nationalities and that kind of stuff. I think when I counted them all up, it was like 11 different things as opposed to like some of my other friends who were, especially in Minnesota, like 100% Norwegian or 100% Swedish or 100% Finnish. Um, so we were a very kind of diverse white background for whatever it's worth. Um, and as I start my talk, so you kind of get a feel for what kind of talk it is, um, my husband and I have had a long running joke about my Asian-ness because I'm a Korean American adoptee. It means I'm a bit of what might be considered an outlier. So I came up with a list of things that make me the worst Asian ever. So first of all, I can't tell the members of the K-pop group BTS apart. I know one of them is named Jaekwon. I like them a lot. I remember when they first hit the scene and it was still their Korean language stuff that was coming um, up. Like for instance, that I had walk-up music to this talk, I would have picked Mic Drop, uh, the Stevie Aoki mix, but I'm not that coordinated to, enough to have walk-up music. But I know who they are. I love that they've become one of the biggest bands in the world. I would have never seen that coming, but I don't know all the members. There's seven of them. I do know that much. Second, first Marvel movie with um, main character, Asian American, Shang-Chi. I didn't go and see it on opening weekend. I wasn't there to support the numbers. And I still kind of, I have to think, like in the movie, there's this discussion between the two of the main characters about how to pronounce the name Shang-Chi. I'm still not quite sure I'm getting it right. Number three, I haven't watched Squid Game yet. Uh, biggest streamer on Netflix, and I haven't gotten around to it. In my defense, it did come out the same time as Midnight Mass, um, and then all of a sudden took off past it, and I was watching Midnight Mass, and Adam was gone, and like Midnight Mass is very intense, and so like I'm home by myself trying to process it. I'm like, I can't take on another series, and I haven't gotten around to watching Squid Game yet. I know, Korean shame, Korean shame. Um, I love cream cheese wontons. They're such trash food. They're not even, I don't even know if they're real. Asian food. Oh, is this working? No. Hold on. 
There we go. This is the hard thing. I, I didn't bring a clicker and we had some technological difficulties. So I'm trying to do this as we go. But I love cream cheese wontons. I'm not even sure we could count them as Asian food. Also in the vein of food, I call Korean food, Korean food instead of food. <laughs> Continuing on, my white husband was better at Korean language than I was. We um, met a friend, made a friend from um, South Korea while he was still in seminary and he would come over and give us Korean language lessons and it was a lot of fun. Um, and uh, he was actually the one who introduced us to K-pop before it became huge. And as we were learning, it was clear that Adam was much better at picking up um, some of the sounds and some of the pronunciations in a way I wasn't. So they would both try and help me and I just failed and it was very funny. And then the final thing is I couldn't spell my Korean middle name properly until middle school. Now, as a Korean American adoptee, one of the traditions among other Koreans was to, Korean adoptees, was to take part of our Korean given name and then put it as our middle name. And my middle name is Kui. Does anybody want to take a guess at how to spell it? Most people would guess Q-U-E-E, -E, right? That's how I spelled it for a while. Um, and for the record, I did put this up to um, like a whole bunch of middle schoolers one summer while I was working on camp. Like, I will buy you ice cream if you can figure out how to spell it right and nobody could. Like, it is K-Y-U-I. And I didn't know that until I was like 13 years old and I saw my birth certificate and I'm like, I have been spelling this wrong for as long as I can spell. <laughs> also, for the record, like, when I was getting my driver's license, um, and this was partially my fault for my handwriting, like, it was spelled wrong on my driver's license, not once, but twice. I had to get a new driver's license twice to get it spelled right. Um, so as a Korean-American adoptee and as the worst Asian ever, I've kind of spent my life living in this kind of weird liminal space, straddling these different pieces of my life. And sometimes it was easy and sometimes it was not. And I do want to make sure I give credit to my parents who checked all the right boxes for the time, who listened to the advice given out um, by the professionals back then about some of the ways to make me feel welcome and to claim who I am. Um, the interesting thing is I have, you know, friends who have adopted internationally very recently and um, some of the advice that they gave back then is still very similar. That is for you, John. This is my son. Um, I was going to start off the talk saying almost certainly he was going to interrupt me and I was right. Um, so some of the things, for instance, that still carry over is making sure you have um, things of likeness around you. For, so for instance, dolls. You know, I was a girl, dolls were a thing. So I had dolls that were Asian, you know, Asian appearance at a young age, including a special edition Korean Barbie that I'm sure was not cheap. Like my parents, you know, like very middle, working middle class. So like they splurged on this really nice looking Barbie doll that was Korean and it was beautiful. Um, books, I had all sorts of books with Asian, American and Korean protagonists. Um, though there were much fewer back then than there is today. And my parents sought them out, looked for them specifically for me, bought them for me, no allowance money needed. 
And then one of the other um, traditions of the Minnesota area was Korean culture camp. Um, there were so many Koreans in the greater Twin Cities metro area um, that there was this massive week-long day camp held every year where we'd go and learn about Korean culture. So language and arts, music, dance, Taekwondo, and my favorite part about the camp, the food. The food was amazing. This is what introduced me to kimchi. Before kimchi became huge, like I used to not be able to find Asian ingredients in the store, and now I can find gochujang, a spicy Korean like garlic paste. I can find it everywhere now. I'm like, I did not see that coming. So like food, it introduced me to that. And I personally fondly remember it. And a lot of my, I have a lot of really good friends that are Korean adoptees and they remember it fondly too. It was kind of one of those rites of passage, like, oh, were you at Korean culture camp? And like some of us have even found each other in some of our you know, group pictures. But even with all the support, my parents doing all the right things, there were still gaps. And I remember one of them being um, kind of a traditional question being asked at, you know, youth groups, icebreakers. We, if those of you who have ever worked in the church or worked with kids or like worked with small groups, icebreakers are key. And one of the big questions is, kind of a fun question, is who would play you in a movie about your life? Um, anybody have any ideas who you would want to play you out there? Yes? Dad, yeah. Okay, any others? Any others? Anybody want to volunteer? What? Brad Pitt. There's a good one. Stanley Tucci. I love Stanley Tucci. There's some good cookbooks, actually. Um, so this is a question that I was asked probably early, mid-90s. And I was a huge cinephile. I still am, just like I have him to occupy me now. Um, so I don't get out as much. And I love studying movies. And we take note of, notes of like cast and directors. And this is right before the internet, like before the internet became huge. So I would actually have to learn these things from like looking. My dad used to have um, Roger Ebert review books and would have cast lists and everything. And I would look through the index and kind of memorize who cast members were and directors. Um, so you really, you know, you had to work to know your stuff. And back then, for Asian American actresses, I had like two choices, right? Margaret Cho, who starred in a TV show called All American Girl, which I vaguely remember watching because I was encouraged by my mother to watch it because, you know, they've been taught, like, you know, when you see somebody that's Asian on screen, you know, let your kid watch it. So, like, she told me to watch the show, um, which was, like, way over my head. And then Ming-Na Wen, who had starred in the Joy Luck Club, which uh, and was on a sitcom called The Single Guy. And I gotta say, these both are still, like I still like these shows. First of all, um, like I said, my mom encouraged me to watch All American Girl. She also had me watch Joy Luck Club, which is like really mature material for like a 12 or 13 year old girl to be watching. Um, I don't think she watched it with me, which was probably for the best. <laughs> And so, like, this, my mom, like, didn't let, like us watching The Simpsons when we were younger, so she's like, here, watch the Joy Luck Club, watch All-American Girl, and I'm like, wait a second. And back then, these actresses were super deep cuts. Like, if I threw these names out to my group of friends, they'd be like, who? Now, one thing I love, Ming-Na Wen is now, like, 
super huge, maybe still a deep cut for some, but fun fact, she is the only person out there to play a Disney princess, a Marvel character slash superhero, and a Star Wars character. I collect Funko Pops and those, uh, that picture there is a picture of her three different characters. So Mulan, um, and um, let's see, and um, Linda May, and uh, Fennec Shand from uh, uh, The Book of Boba Fett, which I haven't gotten around to watching because kid. Um, so, but these were really, really deep cuts, and like Ming-Na Wen might still be kind of a deep cut for some people. Like, you know, these weren't the household names of the age. Like, my other friends were picking like Julia Roberts or Sandra Bullock, or like this is around the time Clueless came out, so like Alicia Silverstone. Um, and you know, especially in movies with teens, geared towards teens back in those days, there was pretty much nothing except for stop characters or like those kind of characters that people talk about now and they're like, this is so horrible, I can't believe they made these movies in the 80s. Uh, like 16 Candles. Um, and for the record, I always kind of wanted to pitch um, my late high school years as a TV series. Um, I worked, this will tell you exactly about the age I am, I worked at Blockbuster Video, which should tell you about how old I am. And I thought it would make like the perfect work-based ensemble teen crossover because I worked with like a super unique group of people. It was like, you know, I was the honor student, really into church things. Like we had a star hockey player from, okay, I'm from Minnesota. So like Minnesota hockey is like Friday Night Lights except for on ice. And I worked with like, um, one of my friends that I worked with was a part of the state um, hockey championship uh, team that season. And like one of my friends was really into landscaping and we had like a couple of goss and like computer science geeks. So I thought it would be like this perfect um, work teen comedy crossover. And of course there needed to be an Asian American lead. But in that, it really shows like we all have this longing to see our stories portrayed in media. And I know I'm not perhaps the only one to have thought of this. And maybe, you know, you weren't big entertainment geeks like me, um, but maybe you thought of like ways that your story could be told like in a book or like a young adult novel, or maybe this part of my life could be on a TV series. And even back then, it's like, you know, we're counting all of the teen movies and culture out there. Like, even getting away, getting rid of the Asian American part of all of it. Like, TV shows and movies didn't focus on the really smart, driven, sciencey girl. Like, you know, you knew somebody was deep because they wanted to be a journalist or an artist, or they were reading like a Sylvia Plath book. They never like had girls that were into science. So, all of that being said, it still amazes me in the past 20 years that now I have a ton more choices. I just, it blows my mind that BTS, Korean boy band, is like one of the biggest acts in the world. Squid Game became the most streamed Netflix series ever. Everyone remember Gangnam Style? I remember when that came on, like one of my friends sent me like, this is all your fault. <laughs> Um, we had all we had the teen movie to all the boys I've loved before, which starred um, her mom was Korean, her dad was white. Uh, the actress that played her is Vietnamese. I didn't care. She was in Hanbok, and it was awesome, like a traditional Korean dress. I'm like, oh, I remember those. Um, and like, you know, the, 
maybe for the women, like the Korean skincare regimen became really big the, a while back, and it was like, that's so cool. And I'm like, I don't have time to do that. I have a kid. <laughs> and for instance, even just 10 years after I graduated, there were social media, there were a few trends that showed me how far we come. The first one is Doppelganger Week on Facebook around January of 2010. And I picked a picture of Jenna Ushkovitz, who played Tina Cohen Chang on Glee. And she is also a Korean adoptee, Ameri uh, a Korean adoptee um, who is a US citizen. And I picked, uh, so obviously that's her on the left with the, um, that was at um, one of the Comic Cons, right? And then that is a picture of me holding a lamb for church. <laughs> One of the senior pastors I worked for, um, he worked on, he grew up in a farm and he would love to bring in animals on Easter. And I like grew up in the suburbs and I have no idea. So I, I have that lamb and you'll notice there's a towel on my arm because we didn't want the lamb to poop on me. So, oh, and the best part was he, um, he would always name the lamb and they would always be worthy. But you have to finish that, right? Worthy is Christ, the lamb who was slain. So I'm like, oh, this poor lamb. But anyway, like I actually had somebody who looked like me and had the same background as me that I could pull up and put up as my doppelganger picture in uh, 2010. And then later in 2016, we had the Me and Three Challenge, again on social media, um, where we were to choose three characters from like movies, TV, books, whatever, that describe you and post these three characters online. And uh, two of my three picks were Asian. So I have, there's my Mulan, Funko Pop. Again, we, the cartoon version Mulan, we do not speak about the live action version. Um, and then Christina Yang from Grey's Anatomy. Um, the, that's the one on this side. And then Joy from Inside Out, who is uh, her character slash the person she's a part of is a Minnesota expat as well. So I'm like, this, this feels like a good version. And the fact that I could get Funko Pop versions of all three characters now. Like, as soon as that um, Christina Yang Funko Pop became available, I like pre-ordered that sucker faster than you could like click on Amazon. Like, I was getting it. I had been waiting for years for it to come around. And so Christina Yang, Christina Yang. Christina Yang was a revelation for me. Um, so I got into Grey's Anatomy probably around the third season. Like I had, I had been in seminary the first two seasons and so I was working and I was studying so I didn't have time for TV and then I went on an internship and I'm like, wait, I finished my work and I don't have to do more work afterwards? I can watch TV? What is this? And so my friends got me into Grey's Anatomy. They're like, Tasha, you have to watch this. And they gave me Grey's Anatomy, you know, back when you would watch TV shows on DVDs. So I would go through all the DVDs. And um, the, never before had a character on TV not only looked like me, but had been like me in so many ways. Um, so the character was Korean American, just incredibly smart and driven, really bold and hilarious and very focused on her career. She was also not a feelings person, like good friend, extremely loyal, not a feelings person, though she did feel and care deeply for others. And, you know, I was going to seminary, so I've been surrounded with like the George, all the Georges and the Izzy's, you know, went on to, you know, they're the, they're the pastor types, and then there's me, and I'm like, what am I doing here? Um, 
and she didn't feel like a character. She felt real and lived in, especially like the really early seasons, the good seasons. And this was like the first time I really remember what they now um, really felt like, um, what they now call feeling seen. Um, so, um, any of you, can any of you out there think of a character that you saw that you're like, that's me on screen? Any of you out there? Dad, <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Going with the theme. Others out there. Uh, the Mark Ruffalo character, you can count on me. Oh. Any others? Um, it's kind of the first question you asked, like, which actor would be you, but someone told me it was kind of like Matt Smith, the Doctor Who. Mm hmm. Okay. I can see that. <laughs> I just get Freddy Krueger all the time. <laughs> <laughs> all right. First of all, thank you all. I'm, 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 I'm guessing a lot of you were expected to be asked questions and join the discussion. So thank you for throwing yourselves out there. Um, so feeling seen is what is one of the ultimate goals of what has been labeled as representation. Um, feeling seen, feeling like this is a piece of yourself or yourself on the screen. And I've heard all sorts of reasons why it's important. Um, first of all, it's making you believe that your stories or our stories are worth sharing with others, knowing that you're not alone. Like, it's not just me. And that sense of belonging, feeling of belonging within the larger world, especially for those of us who feel like maybe you're straddling like a couple of different worlds. Um, <coughs> And often this is seen, just being seen is treated as gospel, uh, as the end all be all point. Um, that all we need is to see some portion of our life reflected back at us and all will be well. This is, um, sometimes it's been given to us as a hope, like, you know, to see ourselves and to see ourselves reflected is the ultimate hope of um, being represented and being seen. But in my experience, this can go in a couple of weird directions. First, for the performer. So I've been following, you know, this happens all the time. The actor is not the same as the character. So Sandra Oh was on Grey's Anatomy for a good long time, so 10 seasons, right? And I've done my best to follow her career too and her other projects that um, she's done. and. Um, you know, you read the interviews, and like, I swear, every time they interview her and they're asking her questions, they're like, are you coming back to Grace? Like, when are you gonna do Christina again? And she's like, I've been gone for like seven years. You're gonna keep on asking me that question? Um, and she's had a, a lot of really great roles since. Um, any of it, like, the first, we're, we're only counting the first season. The first season of Killing Eve was spectacular. Um, but people just can't let it go. Like every interview, when are you coming back? Are you going to be Christina again? If, if this show ends, are you going to come back? And she's like, I, I have a whole other career here. I'm not the same person. The other thing that can happen, and this is my own personal thing, is like during, like I say at the beginning, early Grey's Anatomy is the best Grey's Anatomy. So during later Grey's Anatomy, her character made a lot of questionable decisions. Now. I remember this because she would do something like something career-based, really silly, or really bad relationship decision. And I remember seeing her going, 
Oh, come on, Christina Yang would never. <laughs> and, you know, as we know, you know, you know how these shows work. They have to have more drama, so they have to have, you know, relationship things or do something silly that makes no sense. And I remember being legitimately mad at the character, at Sandra Oh, at the writers, at the showrunners, and then going, you know, maybe this isn't healthy. Like, maybe I should take a step back. Because this is one of the first times I had really identified with a character in such a huge way, I had to learn my boundaries around this. Like, Sandra O oh is Sandra O, oh, and Christina Ng is a character on a TV show, and none of these people are me. And there's no way they can perfectly represent my story on their, first of all, because I'm not a cardiothoracic surgeon, I'm a pastor, for heaven's sakes. Um, and then that brings up the bigger question of, on, can we really represent more than ourselves? So I grew up in a majority white community, especially elementary and middle school, but once I hit high school, you know, still fairly white, you know, Midwest, Minnesota, but there were quite a few adoptees and other um, minorities around, so it felt more normal. I wasn't like, you know, it wasn't as big of a deal that I was Asian, or at least it didn't feel like that. But by the time I started looking for colleges in the Midwest, not on the coast, not the Ivies, none of those things, Midwest colleges, I started noticing how the way that I look, my race, was almost seen as a commodity. And I'm not, I was not naive to the fact that especially Midwest colleges wanted to hit certain diversity numbers, and I helped them do that. Then I went to seminary to become a pastor, grad school for pastors, and um, came and in the whitest mainline denomination in the United States. White the, denomination. The whitest, the whitest denomination, period. Yes. <laughs> the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. And suddenly, I found myself playing a role, a face of representation, if you will, for my school and for my denomination as a whole. And as I was going into seminary, um, I was gifted a phenomenal scholarship. It was called the, it's called the Fund for Leader Scholarship. It's still going on. It's a wonderful scholarship. A national scholarship for um, people going into ELCA seminaries um, with good academic credentials. Um, you know, I had the good academic credentials. I was bio, biology and classics major, not a religion major. Um, and got good grades, I had, you know, the right pedigree, I went to a Lutheran college, I worked at a Lutheran camp, and I had the look. I was a female, I am a female minority. And so we got flown out to Chicago, and, you know, we had to, like, dress in really nice business suit attire, and we got our picture taken for a bunch of publicity stuff. And at one point in time, the summer after I had done all these pictures, um, I actually, was, my picture was featured on the ELCA main website. Like my friends somehow came across this and I wasn't like savvy enough. I should have like figured out how to take a picture of this because it still boggles my mind. Because it was kind of weird. Like I didn't ask for this, but when you're in a public facing role and you're a rarity, it's just, Kind of what happens. And I've certainly watched, certainly watched it too, you know, the entertainment industry. Um, 
actresses and actors there, other Asian American public figures. This is kind of what happens. You're just kind of thrown into the role of here, you are representing something bigger than yourself. And then second, something I've gotten passionate about is reading and listening to other people's stories, especially other Asians and Asian Americans and Korean adoptees, for instance. And there are wonderful networks out there to connect us. Like, this is the good part of social media. Is ever, you can find these connections more easily than in the past. And if there's one thing I've learned, especially as I've read more and more accounts, especially about Korean American adoptees and the way people have processed um, how they've dealt with the fact that they were adopted, is that all of our experiences are completely different. And we've processed them in completely different ways and reacted to it in different ways. No two stories are the same. So when I'm asked, for instance, to speak as a Korean adoptee or as an Asian representative, I hesitate because I'm just me. And I can speak to my story, yes, which is what I'm doing here today, but I cannot speak to other people's stories or experiences. In March of 2021, there were the Atlanta spa shootings, uh, where eight were killed, six were Asian women, and five of whom were of Korean descent of some kind. And immediately after, there were the calls. There were the memes that went out, right? So the, you know, your Asian friends are not okay. You know, make sure you check in with your Asian friends. They are not okay. Um, my bishop called to check in, which was actually extremely kind. It wasn't expected at all. So I appreciated that my parents did as well. Um, and there were all these calls, like very particular calls to me to write, to react, to give hot takes. Um, and it was really intimidating. Um, and I just kind of went, you know, because um, within those calls for the reactions, for the hot takes, for the posts, especially, I'm going to say this, I love my, I, I'm, I'm a fan of my denomination, I've stayed with my denomination purposefully, um, but within there, like, I could, I could see the strings. I could see the things that they wanted me to say, and they were maybe not what I was feeling or how I was reacting, nor did I feel comfortable speaking out on behalf of my friends or the Asian American community or anyone else. And so I just chose silence. Now, I had good conversations with my closest friends. Hilariously, now that I think about it, like I have two good friends. Um, two of my closest friends are also Korean adoptees. Um, hilarious fact, they're not friends with each other, but I'm friends with both of them, all three of us married white guys named Adam. <laughs> like, I, I still, this is still the funniest thing to me. Um, like, I don't even think we checked in with each other. We were just like, ah, the others are fine. It's fine. Like, we didn't even feel the need to check in with each other, uh, oddly. Um, and thankfully, like, you know, I, hot takes on social media are so not my thing. So nobody really expected me to do anything. But I could see all the strings, I could see all the things people wanted me to say, and I was not reacting the way that I think they thought, I thought they wanted me to react. Because I'm very like non-anxious, non-reactive, like pray, let's pray, let's love each other, let's check in, let's preach Jesus, and I don't, 
think that's what they were wanting from me. Now, I can't say that particularly, but that's my own perception. And then there's the question, the real question. Do we really want to be seen? And for beyond, we don't. We want that surface portrayal of our lives, right? But not the nitty gritty details. They don't want our deepest thoughts, our insecurities, um, those non-actions or actions that we regret. They don't want to know, like, I don't want people to know how much I've yelled at my son when I shouldn't have. Um, and yes, we want to see ourselves represented, but only like, you know, the entertaining parts. It's those, you know, there can be some flaws, but they've got to be like entertaining flaws or like relatable flaws, you know, like clumsy, like, you know, all the, all the you know, if they want to be quirky, they were clumsy, which I kind of am. Um, but, you know, but that is, that is not my like worst trait by far. Um, and then even worse, like if we find ourselves representing others, then we get seen and scrutinized from all angles, um, which is, I gotta say, that's, that's scary as hell. Um, you know, who wants their life picked apart from a million different angles? Um, I've long, uh, joked that this talk is going to be the one that gets me canceled. Like someday somebody's going to put me up for like a bishop of the ELCA, which by the way, I do not want. Like nobody do that. Um, but like somebody's going to pull up this video and get me saying this line, which is representation has its limits, both as being represented, but also as the one representing. And in my personal experience, what I've been searching for deep down has been acceptance and belonging and freedom to be, not even be me, just freedom to be. And we cannot find this truly in representation or definitely not in being representatives because there's always that distance, right? If we are being represented or being a representation, it's not us, it's never truly us. There is always, there are only those things shown in representation, which, you know, there aren't, they aren't a real full life. It's only a life portrayed. And even when it's a real person like Sandra Oh, Sandra Oh is only still really Sandra Oh. Her life cannot be mine and vice versa. And just like if I said I represented you, which I'm not gonna do because that would be foolish and get me into trouble, but like if I said I represented you, it's still not actually you. My story isn't your story. My life isn't your life. My achievements are not your achievements. And my failures aren't your failures, which you should all be grateful for, by the way. And so where does this put us? Um, I came across, of all things, 1 Corinthians 13. Um, as an assigned preaching text earlier this winter. You know, I've used this for like a third of the weddings that I've done, actually, which was way less than I thought it was going to be when I added it up. Only a third of the weddings that I've officiated. I was reading the text over as a whole, and there are verses at the end that couples tend to skip, and we're going to look through the section as a whole, and I put it together as a whole because, like, I'm a Bible geek, and I hate taking things out of context. I, like, yell at my uh, youth when they do that, I'm like, context, context. So, let's start with the familiar stuff. Love is patient, love is kind, 
Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not exist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoings, but rejoices in truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, they will come to an end. For we know only in part and prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part. Then I will fully, I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide. These three and the greatest of these is love. If there ever was a Bible verse that spoke to being seen, uh, verse 12 is it. There is no distance here. I like that image. Like, what we do now is we see in a mirror dimly. And if we're going to be honest, that's the best that we can do with representation. It's still immensely important. Seeing, um, seeing, but it's not really seeing each other or ourselves. It's just in a mirror dimly. And most, it can be a dim reflection of our lives, of our experiences, of our stories. But here we are told we are fully known. We are fully seen, all our flaws, all our regrets, all our messiness, all those things we're trying so desperately to hide and to keep buried. And here we are told we are seen. And not only that, we are seen and we are loved. Loved enough that God takes on flesh, becomes not just a representation of us, but us. God takes all of our hidden shame and sin and all those things that we'd rather not see the light of the day, all of us, and kills it with his death on the cross and then raises us up to new life, free from all of that on Easter. Love never ends. I love that root of the verse, what drives it. Love never ends. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. God knows all and loves us through Jesus. So acceptance, belonging, freedom to be, it is in Jesus that we receive all of these things, that we find acceptance, that we find belonging, that we have the freedom to be. And we are freed from being a representative, from putting on the weight of being a representation, where we are, all of that is lifted. We are free to be in Jesus, through whom we are fully known and fully loved. And this freedom, I think, also leads to a new type of acceptance and belonging, not just with God, but with each other as well. Because when we're stripped of all those demands, all that crushing weight, when we are assured that we are seen and known and loved by a gracious God, 
It tends to make us more gracious as well. It opens us up to listen to each other's stories more freely without like the weight of like, oh, their story is totally different. What does that say about me? What does it say about them? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with them? All of that is gone. We can just sit and listen and be open to these different worldviews and perspectives and experiences to see people not as representatives for our own stories or anxieties or aspirations, but as individuals. It allows us to make lists about why we're the worst Asian ever and laugh about it and have fun with it. Oh, and uh, for the record, they are making a TV show about blockbuster video star on Netflix starring Randall Park, who is <laughs> Korean American. So my dreams are coming true, kind of. So who knows, your dream could come true too. So we are free to celebrate these ridiculous things, but to go and to truly see others as God sees you. And that is God's beloved, seen and known and loved fully. Thank you. And a special thank you to my son who only interrupted me once and my husband for entertaining him. <laughs>